a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory and i am one of your hosts pat mitchell joining me on this cinematic expedition as always is adam walker adam i have a question for you thank you i love questions when does a dream become a nightmare when i had to rewatch this movie (laughs) oh no really no i'm just kidding (laughs) Unbelievable. <laughs> if I were to peg a an Adam movie, if someone was like, what's the kind of movie Adam likes? It would be this movie. This is the movie I would describe. Or just if someone had seen Class of 1984, tonight's movie, I would say that is an Adam movie. I don't know if I hit the nail on the head. The whole time I was watching it, I was like, this is just everything he likes. You did and you didn't because, you know, when you announced it last week, I was like, yeah, fuck. Yeah, that movie rips. I have it on DVD. And upon- well, honestly, it, it's it's of no fault of your own, we'll, but we'll get into it, obviously. Interesting. Well, yeah. I'm very interested to hear. I, I have not seen this in a, in a, in a grip, so I was interested to uh, to revisit it and it still held up for me. Uh, for the most part. So I was pleasantly surprised. But yeah, um, coming off of last week's Valley Girl, I think Mm. I was in search of 
I wanted some real punk. <laughs> this is the closest thing I could think of uh, to getting to that. And I, I got it and I didn't get it all at once. It's almost like we went too hard in the other direction. So last week we were talking about everything from Avril Lavigne to Gigi Allen. I think last week we were, it was like Avril Lavigne mall punk. And now I think we got like too far back the other way. It's like, like racist, racist punk, which isn't fun, (laughs) but I guess is exponentially more punk. I don't know. It's a a tough thing to quantify. Yeah, there's, I would say that when we get into this movie, this is going to be one of the more question theoretical late theoretically uh, an analyzed laden movies that we've done in a while for me. Yeah, there's this. I had I had so many thoughts about this movie while I was watching it, which I didn't have other times that I've watched it because that's the thing. I mean, doing this podcast you know it that's what makes it cool is because we go back to watching movies that we've had some experience with in the past and generally speaking we've watched them just as pure entertainment you kind of like set the autopilot on in your brain but then when we're doing it you know, in the context of having to, because that's what we do, we analyze these movies to a certain extent, then certain aspects of your thought processes are activated that weren't before. So you look upon uh, movies maybe in a different light that you didn't before. And I did way more with this movie than I think I've done with most of the movies we've talked about. That's interesting. Interesting that you say that. Um, Well, so... Off the top, what were what were some uh, of your cliff note thoughts uh, having revisited it for the first time in a while? So I think the last time I watched this movie was like at least five years ago, maybe. And it was actually in a, a rock block of movies that were all bangers for me. I remember it distinctly because I I made an Instagram post about it. Because it was this movie, it was the movie Bronson, and there was one other movie. You know Bronson, the movie with... Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. With Tom, uh, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy in it. And I was like, yeah, this movie, is, it's awesome. It is, in a lot of ways, everything that I look for in a movie. You know, it's... It is, a, in a lot of ways, a very quintessential exploitation movie. But, yeah, I so I went into it with high hopes. But a lot of it was, I don't know what it is. My analysis of it this time had me coming away from it with a different opinion. So. I'm intrigued. It, what still, it, it, what differed for you this time around? Well, I will say this. So, like, with Terrifier, you know, as much as I didn't like a lot about Terrifier, I, I'm always willing to give a movie credit where, where it's due. And with Terrifier, of course, as I said, it's it serves its purpose as being a modern-day homage to old-school slashers well enough. Um, it does its job. So, Service that's fine. Right. 
I think in many ways this movie also for an 80s exploitation uh, romp does its job. But there's aspects of it that it leaned too hard into that were also just cultural kind of artifacts and stereotypes and loaded kind of um, I guess uh, hyperboles of the time that they don't age well. So that was my thing with it. So like, I guess for you, it's funny that I'm glad that we back to back this with Valley girl, because there was a lot of things about Valley girl that you didn't like that you felt didn't age well, or were very, you know, dated. And there's aspects of this also for, you know, certain reasons that also dated very much. So that's what I'll say. Yeah, like we were talking about like a, a time capsule movie. And I yeah. could see uh, the 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 fabric of this movie being very, very much so uh, a time capsule movie. Um, I would I say, say, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, finish your thoughts. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, um, I will say by comparison, like not to compare this with Valley Girl, which I don't think many people do or have ever done. No, but like at least with this, people are getting murdered and stuff. <laughs> so like that's a fun reprieve. So like with Valley Girl, I knew no one was going to get got and I knew there wasn't like drug dealing and and ill gotten gains kind of prostitution. Yeah. So like, you know, that stuff is exponentially more interesting to me than um, than uh, forbidden love. Right. And I, I understand that. Um, I guess so in order to not contradict myself and because this happens a lot, I think with people that are especially of the layman sort that are, they're hearing some sort of analysis or an opinion about certain kinds of art from somebody and the layman may say, okay, well, I see that you like this thing, but why don't you like this as well? Because to me, they, they, they seem the same. You know what I'm saying? So this is another one of those movies, This is, or this is an example of one of those things where I could say there's aspects of this movie that I don't like and don't age well. But then if you A, B it with another movie that has very similar traits, and I could be like, but this movie is an example where it does transcend its time enough for me that I think it's it's a better movie. So that's what I'm saying. A lot of people, uh, I guess, you know, they will have that criticism. I think of certain people that, you know, will ingest niche genres. And if they don't know the ins and outs of that, that sort of genre enough, it's easy to pan someone's opinion and be like, well, whatever. You know, you like this, but you don't like this, but they're the same to me. So what's the difference? So I guess that's the thing with this movie is, yes, on paper and in many ways, this movie does tick a lot of boxes for me. But there was just something about it this time where I was like, but I see through a lot of it. And it, it's there's some missteps that didn't age well. There's that. I can't talk about it anymore without us, you know, jumping the gun. So. 
Adam, you have some splaining to do. That's what I'll say. (laughs) Yeah, I'm 10 minutes into the new Midnight Flicks episode, and Adam doesn't like Class of 1984, so I stopped listening. Yeah, stop listening now if you don't want to hear Adam drag Class of 1984 through the mud, y'all. Okay? While I fearlessly try to defend it. While I roast this movie on a spit like the uh, the pig that it is, the pig of a movie. Last thought is the um, the research did bum me out. The research yeah. almost soured the movie for me. So mm-hmm. um, I'll yeah, say there's some that. interesting tidbits and uh, and artifacts that I read myself that I didn't know about nestled within there. Well, let's just uh, um, get into some of the money made and thoughts from back when this uh, movie was first released. Um, Despite being called Class of 1984, it was released in 1982. uh, So that's an interesting choice. It was... uh, a $4.3 million budget made uh, close to $7 million in the box office and had an additional uh, quarter of a million in um, Blu-ray sales. So, serviceable, like we said. Um, you know, made its money back and then, uh, and then some a little bit, um, which I think is surprising to some of the participants of this movie who thought it was going to be a complete slog. Yeah. Um, Almost entirely scathing reviews uh, across the board due to the excessive violence and the overall deplorable nature of the film. But our main man, Rajib, back in our good graces, or 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 so I think, uh, said. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Roger Ebert came to to bat for class of 1984. He said, quote, surprising. I know I was, he, his, uh, his little like short blurb quote about it is on the cover of, of my version that I have the special edition and on the front of it, it's, it just says, it says class of 1984 grabbed me (laughs) quote. (laughs) Roger Ebert. So it sounds like he has a Both class action lawsuit against class of 1984. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Maybe that's still the litigation still pending post uh, post posthumous uh, litigation. Posthumously. Uh, yes. He's, he's litigating from the grave against Mark Lester. <laughs> he might not be the only one. Um, Right. <laughs> well, class of 1984 has received some really savage criticism. Newsweek called it the class of 1982 with herpes. What does that even mean? I don't know. I guess it means the critic found the movie so hateful that it wasn't worth more than cheap wisecracks. But unless we can accept talent wherever we find it in movies, and especially in smaller genre movies without big stars, we're going to be left with nothing but overpriced lead balloons and delicate little exercises in sensibility. Class of 1982 1984 is raw, offensive, vulgar, and violent, but it contains the sparks of talent and wit, and it is acted and directed by people who cared to make it special. It's a very uncharacteristic uh, Roger Ebert um, quote, uh, and I find it very forward-thinking, because he's basically, um, I mean, 
he's he's got like a crystal ball as to where Hollywood would eventually become to where we are now. Like this idea of these little subgenre movies have been eradicated to the point where we just don't see them very often anymore. I will say, I don't, I'm not going to say they're totally gone, but the idea of this making it into a theater that the days of that are gone. These kinds of movies are now relegated to um, a midnight purgatory, uh, a direct to video kind of fate. So I, I, you know, I think he's very uh, forward thinking in that way. Well, and I think that goes back to our conversation we were having last week about the state of the music industry and how it's changed since the 80s as well, where, you know, there was this middle, middle area, this middle, mid-level sort of world within not only the the label structure the label um kind of like anatomy of re- of record releasing but also i would say the big studio kind of system where you had instances of you know these executives that were like willing to take a chance on some of these weirder things just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what would stick and they would just they had so much money they could throw at it and whatever Whereas now things have cleaved so much into it's I feel like there's a lot of almost economic parallels in this in, in terms of like class analysis or whatever. Just the world is getting cleaved more and more into this further separation of haves and have nots where this middle area where things that can exist that could still potentially have a chance to whatever meet uh, reach greater audiences or have more financial you know backing thrown at it it's just it doesn't exist anymore it's like you either have to somehow you know whatever be pre-manufactured on a bigger level or you know somehow be lucky enough to get you know swooped into it to catapult yourself into superstardom or you have to kind of like middle in the mire of of your own self-promotion and luck and like whatever through like internet channels and things like that to be able to you know maybe get more recognition you know what i'm saying so i feel like there was just more of like there was more of a mezzanine type area in the world before that could like have these kind of quirky fringy things exist and have a chance to like have more access more success and access to the greater populace so yeah that's why a movie like this would wouldn't necessarily be successful unless it like got to be like an internet sensation yeah so some great pre some precognition going on with yeah for him to say that in 1982 is is uh shows a lot uh yeah just yeah he knows he knew that the place of this movie then and he kind of predicted the place of this kind of movie uh now so it's crazy yeah um okay with well with that why don't we get into the good the bad and the questionable
starting with uh, the good. Um, I will go. Uh, I will start off by just saying the uh, the teenage head uh, punk like moshing slam dancing is one of the most authentic uh, portrayals of quote unquote punk in in cinema in a movie such as this. It's not in a, like a documentary style. Um, that that it, it just it, pe- watching people go off like that. Um, well, it, it's nice that COVID is over because it made me miss that that sort of raucous music crowd. But uh, it was shot just really well. It just it just looked yeah. authentic. They it it that is one hundred percent USDA prime punk <laughs> beef. Yeah, I had just put down cool punk gig. Definitely Great appreciate punk gig. Yeah, so that was one of. That was one of the aspects where I think it was by sheer luck, honestly. I don't know how much this was by actual, you know, diligent crafting and research on the part of the directors and whatever. I mean, it might have been, but it was it's good because unlike where we were talking about, like the the pitfalls in other movies like this, where the people who make this movie just seem to have no clue whatsoever um, and cast basically either a band that they just like pulled together or made up just for the movie or, you know, and just kind of slapped together their idea of what that particular like subculture was. This is where they actually took a real punk band and had a real show essentially with real punks off the street that they brought in as extras to mingle in with the the cast and going, so. you know, when you go when you go that extra mile to do something more authentic, it just comes off on screen as as authentic. So I really appreciate it. And I think that like that first self-titled Teenage Head album is is awesome. And I think it is kind of a prototype of <laughs> some of the bands in uh, in punk would be just become the, this like uh, rock and roll 77 punk shit or whatever. Um, they would kind of roll into that eventually. But this was like before it became popular to play like that kind of of weird punk. It's almost like Ramonesy. But I love that teenage that self-titled Teenage Head album is awesome. Yeah. So in another instance of weird synchronicity, considering the parallels to, you know, maybe uh, Valley Girl and whatnot, so I've been on a really big kick uh, going back and revisiting the band Flame and Groovies. And that's where Teenage Head got yeah, their name they got from. their name. That's right. It's, yeah, from, yeah, a, yeah. it's from a Flame and Groovy song. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you also. The early Teenage Head stuff is great. And it's all, yeah, from that 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 seminal period of power pop and garage rock revivalism that was yes. happening at the time that, yes. you know, so that owe their debt to like bands like, yeah, the Ramones and Flaming Groovies and things like that. So yeah, it's great. Absolutely. That's like that, that is definitely one of the high points of, of the movie. Also in my good, uh, in my great is mm-hmm. the, the late great, I don't know if he's passed away, but boy, howdy. He, there's no way he's alive. I'll look it up while I'm talking. 
Um, Roddy McDowell, I absolutely yeah. love. Yes, he has passed away. Um, yeah. And it's been a long time. <laughs> um, but when I see him, I just automatically think Fright Night. Um, yep. But he is a lifer in terms of uh, trudging in the waters of subgenre. Uh, like the Poseidon Adventure is another one that that comes to mind uh, briefly. But um yeah, I love him and I love his performance as a well-worn, taxed, like completely exasperated individual. It really plays well and he, he pulls it off. Yeah, Roddy McDowell at his wits end with the, the student body, particularly the, you know, the, the villains in this movie. Uh, in terms of casting, I feel like acting and casting that is definitely the 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 most quality choice put in this movie for sure and yeah i love seeing him and stuff too obviously the fright night reference but also i don't know if you ever saw the movie hell house that he was in it's also super I've good i've seen hell house but i don't i don't recall i don't much about it so but that's interesting yeah so i didn't put this in my research and, and trivia, I hope you didn't because I don't want to step on your dick. I had things, but so Dennis Weaver was originally asked to be in the role of that teacher and he turned it down because of the violent aspect of it. But Roddy McDowell enthusiastically accepted it, which all the more tells me like, you know, this dude was a king, <laughs> you know, this dude was, a you know, he was down for the weird shit and that's cool. Yeah, I did read that, but I had no fathomable clue who Dennis Weaver was. So it did peg the meter in terms of knowledge. I was like, I don't know who that is, but I'm glad Roddy McDowell got it. Uh, have you seen Duel? Yes, I'm seeing here that he's in Duel, but I, would, I wouldn't have been like, oh, the guy from Duel? Like, there's no fathomable way. I, I wouldn't <laughs> have known who he was on any level. He does a really good job in Duel. So if you, I, I just assume that that if you like Duel at all, he would stand out in your mind because of that. But otherwise, Duel's something was, that I've seen like once, maybe. Yeah. Otherwise, he had like a notable role in some television show. I think it was like McCloud or something. He was in as, Gunsmoke, which I know yeah. is a huge '50s Western show. So right. Yeah. No. That none of that. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> on my radar. <laughs> yeah, so of course there's obviously the infamous scene where um Roddy McDowell as Corrigan pulls the gun out on the class. And um so I have a lot of questions regarding that scene, but that scene if you take it unto itself without uh the, the context that it's uh that surrounds it particularly afterwards, it's a really great scene and it's it's a pretty powerful moment in the movie. Uh, so yeah, yeah, my one man of my favorite it. moments. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Um, I would also put in my good. This is this is kind of like a predecessor to all those like '90s movies where teacher goes into inner city school to shape young minds. Uh, like right. obviously, like dangerous minds. But yeah. I love. I love. This the aspect of this movie that I love is that that is what's happening. There is an individual. I'm a fucking idiot. I don't think I did a plot synopsis. I think I blew through that. Um, 
So I suppose I'll do it now. If you haven't seen yeah. Class of 1984. <laughs> uh, <laughs> A music teacher by the name of Andrew Norris takes a job uh, at a in a troubled inner city school where a gang of hunks led by a character named Peter Stegman and kind of violently create chaos and rule the school, which leads to a tit for tat uh, revenge sort of story. Um, so having said that, I like that it's like teacher goes into inner city school and doesn't give a fuck about the kids because this dude is not like <laughs> he is not in any way playing with anybody that's like fucking around like he's not Michelle Pfeiffer in it like I'm going to reach these kids. He's like, fuck these kids. I don't care about anybody other than like. Michael J. Fox, who's <laughs> hilariously in this movie. It's like pre-Family Ties Michael J. Fox. But I I, I like that he went in there um, and it did not turn into because this movie would have just become uh, after school special if it was just him trying to reach Peter Stegman because he's a brilliant mind on the on the piano or whatever the hell. Yeah, I mean, he does enter into a pretty like immediate adversarial role with the gang. Um, I will say yes. So the 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 almost fish out of water type of like aspect of this with the uh, upstanding kind of you know well-meaning teacher going into a school, um, uh, not. So it it not becoming what you were saying is cool. It also like for other movies like that where it it falls apart specifically with the one you're talking about with Mel Michelle Pfeiffer. It falls into that trap of the white savior idea. Yeah. That like oh you know the the white educated lady comes in and helps all the black kids. So obviously you don't have to deal with that because this is pretty much an all white school. <laughs> yeah, they kind of take race out of it outside of the weird drug war that is being yeah. that is being perpetuated between like punks and some like black gang that has no name and actually has nothing to do with the movie outside of like the yeah. first opening like bit. Yeah, very inconsequential. I will say this too. I don't know if you had this at all. The uh, the theme of vigilantism that is predominant in this also, I feel like, is a rel is a relic of, of a bygone era. You don't see that nearly as much now. Granted, there are aspects of that type of trope in some movies. You know, you and I, we were talking about recently, you know, Brawl and Cell Block 99. But that in itself is that is a movie that is a throwback back to a bygone era. So I feel like the vigilantism that is central to this movie. Also, you don't ever see that very much. And the fact that, yeah, uh, Norris immediately becomes the vigilante <laughs> dead set. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like, he, it's not completely divorced from the idea of him trying to at least somewhat help Stegman. That he kind of vacillates a bit throughout the movie on there's times where he's like, you know, maybe I do want to give this kid a chance. And then, he, you know, he turns into obviously the 
the horrible prick that he 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 continually shows his colors like stegman has stegman is is a pure sociopath he has no intention of changing his ways whatsoever and he manipulates norris in a way where sometimes he'd be on the precipice of being like okay maybe this kid has some potential and then he just immediately turn it around and to the point where it breaks norris <laughs> yeah to say to say the least absolutely yeah. um but the other aspect of the other uh part of this that i love is is when it gets into like the one upsmanship of of their revenge which norris is in like way over his head <laughs> Like, right. I feel like this is the kind of prank war. Like Norris is leaving like bags of shit on fire on Stegman's door and Stegman mm-hmm. is like decapitating the fucking family dog and leaving that yeah. in the like mailbox. <laughs> and it's like, uh, well, you really took it up a notch. <laughs> yeah. But I still enjoy I, I still really enjoy um uh that that back the back to back like uh back and forth of of like you did this so i gotta do something even more fucked up to you and it just culminates in like pure chaos so you're not on board with you don't like the revenge stuff I, that's okay no, no, uh, no. that's not what i'm saying <laughs> wait a minute hey here we go no now it begins. No, I'm totally into that. I like I like that that aspect. I I like old school vigilante movies, Death Wish, all those things. Yeah, I, it's very um, it's very Death Wish e actually. That's what I was trying to call back um, was this idea of uh, a scorned individual having to go on like a scorched earth tour. <laughs> That, yeah. that always rules. I don't I don't think this like satisfies that that itch necessarily. It it it's cool, like, but I don't identify with and I think Norris is a fucking wiener. So like no, it's it's hard for me in to get bed. into it um on that level. Like he's not yeah, he's not Charles Bronsoning this movie and by by any fathomable stretch of the imagination, but I like the idea of them going tit for tat. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not the execution. <laughs> the execution has problems in its construction because, and we'll get into this when we talk about the questions, but there, there's a lot of plot holes for this uh, tit for tat to keep going on and keep like, ex- you know, accelerating essentially for me. So even though like, yes, there's aspects of it that are cool and, you know, you think it's funny within the framework that this story is built into, to me, it also also, there's a lot of times we're just like, okay, but there's no way that this would happen. And that's what kind of, you know, causes my issues with it. So sure. But anyways, um, I also just really like the um the what what uh what this culminates into uh yeah the ending is is absolutely bonkers it's just crazy i i guess if you hadn't seen it before you wouldn't necessarily know where it was going but him just essentially 
killing everybody in this gang one by one in the school using like school implementation is so it's so satisfying because uh, they definitely like all of them have it coming and that's um, yeah, specifically Peter uh, but it, it's it is great I, I love uh, I love that ending where it's just him murdering all of them in, in different like in, inventive ways it's so cool yeah and just the cold like it starts off as a cat and mouse sort of thing that just grad you know not gradually but like ramps up to more and more violence I like the way that whole scene was even shot the dark hallways with the red light and everything and going to get into cinematography and you know uh the way certain things were um arranged shooting wise i love that whole part where the the girl punk just kind of keeps poking out of different rooms and you know taunting norris um, to you know, eventually lead up to him, yeah, just dispatching each one of them one by one in really, really violent ways. <laughs> it's great, it's a, and everyone gets like a pretty cool, like elaborate death scene. Um, I mean, obviously, anyone listening uh, is well aware of spoilers, but Peter Stegman's like sus- Suspiria death. <laughs> It's yeah, 100%. So nuts and good. It is, I mean, is that specifically a callback to Suspiria? Because it seems too specific, like falling through the glass, being hung, the way it's just like, uh, then it, it's just cuts to an extreme close up of like the face that's all like, uh, you know, cut up from all the glass that that the body just went through. Like it's very much. So that death scene from Suspiria, the opening death scene. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that. And I didn't read anything to necessarily connect the two, but that whole aspect of the movie, that ending is very Argento esque, just in terms of the use of color, the deaths, that, that final death in, in, in particular. Yeah. I feel like a lot of it is, if it's not directly, an homage to Argento, it's a subconscious mimicking because Lester probably saw Suspiria at some point, I would assume. And yeah, just utilized a lot of the same, you know, ideas in this movie. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to, to point out for sure. Um, one of my last goods is, uh, while albeit not as great of an overall soundtrack um you we still get fear teenage head alice cooper i mean it's a still it's still a banger of a of a soundtrack i do like the soundtrack i will say that part of it is in my bad and when we get into the bad i'll just open right up with that one sure but, yeah Soundtrack overall is great, you know. It's what's that shitty a, Alice Cooper song? I mean, I, I dude, <laughs> just we'll get into it, man. But yeah, soundtrack I mean, yeah, great. That, that shit ball Alice Cooper song doesn't set the tone. I I, I agree with that. Yeah, um, um, I, I wanted to say also, uh, I, I I genuinely like seeing a young Michael J. Fox in this. Michael J. Fox is one of those actors that. Um, he's one of those rare actors that I feel is, um, has been unscathed 
over his career. Uh, he seems like he's a pretty good guy. There's no scandals attached to him. You know, I personally have a lot of nostalgia attached to his roles, obviously the back of the future movies in particular. So I don't know. He's so, got, he's so fat cheeked and like, he's, he's so like, chubby. He's just he's a chubby so little ch- man. In this. Cheeky. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wild to see him in this. Um, he's not even Michael J. Fox. He's Michael Fox, which is Michael crazy, Fox. which is more of a, uh, screen actors guild, uh, um, issue that he was having at the time. He was trying to be, he was trying to be billed as Michael J. Fox. He knew the power yeah. of that, of that J. No one cares yeah. about Michael Fox. Everyone no. cares about Michael J. But Michael yeah, he Dave. hasn't done uh, Alex P. Keaton yet. Um, he hasn't done anything yet, really. And this is a heavy Canadian, being a Canadian-American actor, uh, this this cast, though, in general, is Canadian across the board. Yeah. And, you know, I even have somewhat fond associations with seeing Family Ties because I grew up watching it. You know, and, you know, when you're younger and you're, you haven't formulated any sort of political opinions or your compass hasn't been developed whatsoever, you know, when I would see Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton as being the contrarian Reagan, young Reagan, young Republican, you know, it was a funny dichotomy at that time, you know, especially when you're whatever, however old I was, which is pretty young to think about. So, yeah. anyways, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, our little our little boy is growing up to be a sociopath. It was cute then. It's not cute yeah. anymore. That's I guess. what I mean. Yeah, it was. It's funny. It's funny in in that respect as being an '80s sitcom, a fluff sitcom. Sure. Know, but <laughs> anyways, my last good, and then you can wrap up anything else you had on top of it. Um, but I do. Uh, Mark, this director of Mark Lester, I would this is an aspect uh, or this is a category that we got rid of from season one to season two. But we used to talk about uh, director trifectas and tried to pinpoint three movies in a row in a director's filmography that is unfuckwithable. And he's got class of 1984 followed by Firestarter and Commando. That's yeah, that is pretty fucking beefy that's a beefy yeah. sandwich um boy howdy i and he really just made his mark in these kind of middling low budget action thrillers i mean he's got like showdown in little tokyo extreme justice i mean, just i don't even know what that is that sounds incredible oh it's got <laughs> lou diamond phyllis in it of course uh mm-hmm. night of the running man sounds like a running man sequel uh right <laughs> uh, but like I, like this is his whole filmography it's crazy um so good on him. I love a good director that knows knows what he wants to do and isn't afraid to just keep middling in in the in the slop. And he's definitely one of those. Yeah, he's he's definitely he's made his money, you know, knowing what he's good at for sure and hasn't really stepped out of those bounds too much as far as I know. I'm not familiar with a whole lot of his filmography other than obviously those three that you mentioned. So but from what I know, from just kind of casually perusing his filmography, it seems like he kind of stays in his lane. But what do I know? 
Yeah. And he wrote this. This is conceptually his, whereas Commando and Firestarter, obviously Firestarter is Stephen King, um, but he didn't even write the screenplay for Firestarter. Uh, yeah. But this is his more of his baby, um, mm-hmm. uh, this idea. So that that that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Um, any more good to wrap it up? I was going to say, speaking of writing credits, this was co-written by Tom Holland, who who also directed Fright Night. Yes, yes, and I did Charles see. Wyatt. I did see uh, Tom Holland on this bad boy. I'm glad you yeah. uh, mentioned him. I didn't have him didn't have him written down, but um. I love me Tom Holland very much so. Yeah. Fright Night and Child's Play Alone are, you know, definitely Mount Rushmore pieces in in the world of horror. And he figured out how to bring Psycho back as a sequel, which in 1983 probably seemed like a batshit idea. Not only did he do it, it was awesome. So he doesn't get a lot of credit for the... uh, the the penmanship and the directing eye that he lended to horror over the years for sure um i would say as just another uh overarching grand good this movie is pretty action-packed it doesn't let up that's another thing that kind of keeps you in the seat watching it you know despite any inconsistencies or whatever um criticisms you might have with the script or the plot or whatever but it's it's really action-packed it doesn't let up there's a lot of a lot of bang for your buck in this movie so there's no some, there's some yeah you're you're right yeah i, I didn't have that written down but it's uh, all killer no filler there are some like very brief lulls which i have in my bad but they're you know they're inconsequential in terms of the overall structure of the movie so yeah it's a it's a it's a heater of a movie when it comes to that. So, so bad. Uh, go ahead. You wanted, you had a jumping <laughs> off point. <laughs> yeah, dude, that Alice Cooper song is one of the worst pieces of shit. Not only that he's made, but just, it is a, so Alice Cooper, I don't know how much you know about this. I'm sure some of our listeners might, but Alice Cooper had, a dark period in his <laughs> discography there between the early eighties and basically when his big comeback occurred in the early nineties with uh, trash where he kind of reinvented himself as um, more of a, a pop, uh, a pops, uh, songster type of guy. Um, I love Alice Cooper. I specifically love the original Alice Cooper band. It's some of my favorite music ever written. Um, and I really, really like even some of the stuff that he did afterwards. Welcome to My Nightmare. Uh, Alice Goes to Hell. Up to Flush the Fashion, which is this was kind of the tipping off point where Alice Cooper started to tread this path of, I think, trying to adapt to what was current, but always missing the mark. And this song is a prime example of him way, way the fuck off left field fucking garbage town with the song. And the fact that it's the main theme of this, this movie really, really like sets like a a not cool tone (laughs) for me. (laughs) So my make my biggest problem with it is it 
doesn't set the tone. It's just it's a strange song. Yeah. I mean, I don't I mean, I don't have any explanation for this. I'm not a fucking genius, but feel free to throw money at me, Hollywood. Why was Schools Out not the fucking opening theme? For Is that too obvious? But like if you if if I hear the opening riff or or the or the cadence of the chorus for Schools Out, is that not is that too perfect? Am I a fucking idiot? Like why why the hell are we not using that? I'm what's going on? I know that it's like over like beyond it, it, it transcended even him, uh, and maybe he didn't even want it used in that fashion. But god damn, I mean at least it's better than this. Yeah, so I have a few comments about that. Yes, would have clearly been a much superior uh, theme song. I would say that if anything, there was probably some uh, budgetary reason that maybe that wasn't used because that song itself, if they did want to use it, would have been um, it would have been the ownership of Warner Brothers. So even though this movie, you know, it was fairly successful um, for budgetary concerns. They probably like stuck with either new material where they could pay less or they stuck with, you know, lesser known bands, obviously, you know, from the punk world where they could pay them less. But also this is, again, this is an issue of you have these directors and writers that they miss the mark where it's like, in fun and in fundamental ways where this is a movie about punks you have punk music all throughout the movie why is your opening theme not a fucking punk song or at least punk adjacent like at least the song schools out to me is a punk adjacent song you know what i mean it has a punk vibe to it it has a snotty vibe to it that not song, to mention, we're talking about school <laughs> talking about school something <laughs> the about opening school scene is them leaving school yeah there's just so many other ways that you could have landed this and you fucking whiffed it also teenage head isn't like that it's also another bizarre choice like this like uh proto power pop shit like uh i mean i love teenage head and i love that scene with them in it but like you couldn't even have them carry a theme song for this. Uh, yeah, right. it's just very bizarre. Again, I don't know. Again, getting like rock and roll high school like was probably very difficult. So I understand. But yeah, yeah, we don't a lot get of issues um, with that. a lot of issues. I mean, um, ain't got no sense rips. Uh, so I'm glad that that worked. Um, yeah. And they didn't go see an Alice Cooper concert and he's playing that. I am the future. Dear Lord, we'd all fall asleep. Yeah. Then slam dance into I am the future. Not into it. So, (laughs) yeah, that's my opening salvo on the bad. (laughs) I'll also say this may be the worst policing we've ever seen. We've seen a lot of bad police Uh, work. Dude, we need to have just a whole subcategory in our words and categories. It's (laughs) bad police. Bad, yeah, bad. We could come up with the, the Detective Stewiski Award. <laughs> <laughs> the Detective Stewiski Award for the most incompetent individual in this in the movie. I mean, 
unless you come to Detective Stewiski with the gun <laughs> that is still smoking, <laughs> pictures of what just fucking happened, more than 20 eyewitnesses, DNA samples, hair, skin, nail fucking fragments. This dude's not going to get off his ass and <laughs> He ain't doing shit. He ain't doing shit. Anything. It's unbelievable. (laughs) So it really, it got to the point where it's like, okay, what is actually going on here? (laughs) Is there some nefarious reason as to why this dude is not helping whatsoever? The torment of Norris's family seems to go way under the radar. Right. Yeah, like I was constantly having that conversation with Charlotte and she almost had to develop a a parallel world theory about this, (laughs) this uh, universe that this school exists in where it's it's just like, yeah, the kids, they just they're they're of some sort of elite class that they're completely untouchable by the law. (laughs) <laughs> and we've really as, a, as like societally we've really come around in this idea now we have senators literally coming out and being like oh yeah that 15 year old can go to jail for life like throw like lock him up and throw away the key like we've really come around in this idea that it doesn't matter if you're under 18 this movie uh uh, presupposes this sort of notion that if you're eight, like before you're 18, it doesn't matter if you fucking raped somebody, killed somebody, murdered uh, someone's family pet or or animal, like animal mutilation, uh, car uh, uh, carjacking, attempted murder. Well, they're not 18 yet. What do you want me to do? I'm just detectives to whiskey. <laughs> it's just so- like- <laughs> Right. And that's where I I was. I had so many questions arising about this movie and where my own analysis of it was becoming more convoluted in relationship to my own views, my own like uh, worldviews and and things that I value. And for me, I don't know how I can say this right now without getting into the questions, but yeah, to me, it's like. I was trying to like assume the way the real world acts, whether I agree with it or not, make assumptions on this movie, but also think about what I think the world should act like, you know, in terms of like carceral punishment and its relationship to, you know, minors and things like that. So, yeah. So I had questions within the 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 structure and world of the movie that was supposed to be, you know, happening and my own questions about you know how I view these things that were going it was just going throughout the whole movie basically that that's what and it kept undermining my appreciation for it so yeah but yeah the cop that cop is awful those cops are terrible <laughs> it's so bad it's the worst policing we've ever seen mm-hmm. yeah. um i know this was in your bad but norris is like a hall of fame idiot he's <laughs> like Undeniably. I don't know why. He's like basically hell bent on getting Arthur murdered. Like he does not care. Arthur needs to narc on these individuals. And it doesn't matter if he lands in the hospital with a lacerated kidney or whatever. Norris is going to drive Arthur into the ground trying to get these other people behind bars. (laughs) Yeah, he's just it's a it's a classic example of doing things that he thinks will help and just making matters worse. So let's run it down. Bad teacher. I mean, Deneen. Bad basically husband. Run, 
Yes, yes. <laughs> but bad, like Deneen runs that class and he he bails on that class routinely to go after right. these these this punk gang. So bad teacher, bad husband. He gets his <laughs> wife. I mean, he, he I I don't want to say that it's necessarily his fault. But it is his fault that his wife was <laughs> was basically gang raped by the the group of pugs. Like he he did very little to to help her out whatsoever. Yeah. Like I know that he tells her she needs to probably live with like go stay with her sister for a little bit. Uh, but if I was living with my pregnant wife and there was even an iota of <laughs> Of shit going on, like a, of a threat, you know, yeah, of a threat that that we're not even we're not even talking about. There's no discussion. Like she needs to go somewhere else. So yeah, so bad teacher, right? You're right. Bad husband. He's kind of a bad friend. I mean, Corrigan gets killed and he keeps dragging Corrigan into this shit when Corrigan just wants to drink in the in the teacher's lounge and kind of hook and hang out. Yeah. So bad friend. Uh, bad game planner. Like, I feel like he doesn't really know how to go about enacting any of this revenge until he kind of gets his shit together at the end, but it's more of like a fight or flight response. Um, he's also a narc who doesn't really understand high school's like social hierarchy and he gets manipulated (laughs) and outdone at every turn. Uh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) he's a hard, that's a tough ask. To have him be the lead, it, it you're in his shoes the whole movie because it's, it's like, well, I don't like I'm not I'm clearly not like uh, with these like murdering, raping like uh, sociopaths. So I guess I'm Team Norris. But then when you ride for Team Norris, boy, howdy, <laughs> there's a lot of stupidity there. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's he sucks uh, as a uh, as a leading man as a leading character. I, okay, so the actor portrays him fair, well enough, so I, I I can't necessarily criticize the acting chops. He does fine. No, this is more um, yeah, right, right, right. This is a criticism of the writing, the writing, the writing of the character. Yes, is 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 bad. Um, I will also add to this, and I know this was why you gravitated towards this movie, and it was probably a good for you, but. Still, for me, and this is another thing that kind of took me out of it. Um, this is still a bad portrayal of punks. It's not a convincing portrayal of punks, and and like you said, it could have. It you know, this is a an example of maybe it went too far the other way, cartoonishly, where you know, yeah, punks are outsider individuals they're you know they can be extreme individuals in many ways they're um they come from a subculture that lauds antisocial behavior and things like that but and that's this is all of my more uh when it comes to critic criticizing the the social commentary about this movie really misses the mark and that includes its portrayal of punks where this is an era where white people white suburban middle class people particularly were afraid of everything like they always are but <laughs> the the malicious, violent, murderous, sociopathic, psychotic 
teenager in particular, also punks, was another one of those things that every white person needed to be afraid of. So, you know, obviously this movie cartoonishly uh, hyperbolizes how punks would act and how punk life is. So. They get... It's hard to... It's hard to detail. I think they... You know, in, I think punk was still uh, a, a con- conceptually something that uh, movies were still trying to hash out as to yeah. what that meant. And early on, it just meant like chaos, a, a chaos agent. Um, right. And a lot of, of what went along with that was that they purposely are snide and want to offend. And so like we will wear swastikas, like we'll say, we'll call people the N word. Uh, And I think there was a contingent certainly in the eighties that precipitated like Jello Biafra being like, all right, I'm sick of going to shows and seeing assholes wearing swastikas because they want to purposely be like offensive to like quote unquote normies, but it's fucking stupid. So knock that right. shit off. So like, is it a bad portrayal? Yes. Is it accurate to maybe a contingent of individuals? I think maybe ironically, the thing that I find the most accurate is when Peter goes back to his mom's plush condominium. Yes. Like I loved seeing <laughs> that. Like Peter yes. doesn't stay live in like a an alley or sleep in a trash can or whatever. Like I think that would have been uh, inaccurate in terms of like he's so punk, he lives on the streets, yeah. he doesn't give a shit. The most accurate portrayal was like this type of fucking asshole is going back <laughs> to Mommy Dearest's condominium yeah. and like eating her out of house and home and being like and 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 coddled yeah and coddled like that that (laughs) is so i'm glad they had that scene because that is accurate i agree that is the swerve that they did where i i I believed it in and that in itself you know is a more accurate commentary on why certain factions of punks acted the way they did in the in terms of being antisocial. it wasn't necessarily yeah because of poverty or because of some sort of lower class status it was because they were privileged individuals they were all entitled assholes <laughs> pretending to be like from the streets or like latchkey right. kids or or whatever yeah. i think more than anything that's almost the the a very key piece of the pie of punk is people pretending to be something they're not tougher than they're not Uh, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. I think that is a big slice of the punk pie, especially with disingenuous individuals coming in and trying to, you know, make quote unquote scenes about themselves and their own bullshit. So, yeah. Right. And so what I wanted to say also to kind of piggyback on the, our criticisms of Norris as the, um, as the quote unquote hero of the movie there is no, there aren't any heroes in this movie. It's hard to, yeah, um, to double back around. Yeah. Yeah, you, there's team nobody. I mean, I guess I'm team, um, uh, team Corrigan. I'm all, all team about Corrigan. team Corrigan. Yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, you, yeah, if you're like if you're Team Norris or Team Stegman, I'd rather kill myself. <laughs> well, and that's where I think it's funny that Ebert had, you know, given this some sort of praise or positive appraisal because consistently when I've read his negative reviews, there's a couple things that always seem to kind of tick tick him off. And one, and this is another thing that's in this movie that we'll probably talk more in depth when we get into the trivia. There is a very, very crass, cynical portrayal of a young woman who's obviously being, you know, um, exploited. So there's that. I've consistently seen him talk shit on movies because of that. And another thing that always seems to really be a bugaboo of his is not establishing any characters that you can in any way sort of relate to or have sympathy or empathy for. So the movie lacks that. <laughs> so it's funny. To I me think that he just like, identifies with Norris. Right. So to me, that's, we don't, that's a, obviously. Right. That's a false. It's a false empathy in my opinion, because Norris isn't a hero. And I, and that's where this movie misses the mark again, because Lester's trying to portray Norris as the vigilante hero. That's just given the bad punks or comeuppance. But as we just stated pretty thoroughly, he's awful. He's just making matters worse. He's not helping the situation at all. So he's a real Mr. Magoo. Like he's so dumb. <laughs> like when Stegman's yeah. beating the shit out of himself and he's like, I'm going to stick around and just see where this goes. Oh no, you put your blood on my hand. Yeah. I guess I'll just kind of wait for somebody to find us like this. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's a, everything he does is, is infuriating. You're just like, man, how do you fall into this mousetrap every goddamn time? Like you just have no precognition as to like what's about to like what's unfolding literally before your eyes and you can't like yeah. he doesn't stop it he doesn't take any measures to to prevent it from happening in the future or prevent things from getting worse like he's, he's really, really infuriating it sucks but that's uh, i guess again one of the premises of the movie is they're just these kids are so out of control that it's just out of their hands there's just no way there's no way that anybody can stop them from doing what that's just how it is. You know, so for like the cop, it's it's a lot of bureaucratic bullshit. You know, my hands are tied or, or whatever. Same with the principal. Same with the principal. So anyways, so a lot of that leads into my questions. So, yeah, I don't know so I don't have yet. any more bad, but I do yeah. have questions. Questions aplenty. Right. Um. I guess because I just hinted at it, my big central question is, how do these kids keep getting away with this stuff? There's, And this is where I was, this is where I'm analyzing it from the viewpoint of what actually happens in the real world and from my experience in high school to, you know, also kind of double back onto what my own viewpoints are as far as how society should treat minors in these regards but in the real world those f fucking kids would have been long gone you know they wouldn't have they, they would have never precipitated to the point where they are acting out so violently and so aggressively and so you know and, and in such a manner that it's threatening not only other students lives but 
you know, administrative lives, they would have been gone. They would have been long fucking gone. They would have been locked up in, you know, juvie. So, yeah, this this should just be like Nancy Pelosi high like this exists in some sort of like spineless <laughs> liberal like universe where like there's no consequences for anything. They're more uh, they're they're more concerned with their image in relation to how punishing yeah. these individuals would look upon themselves than it would be to point anybody in the right direction or create any sort of better better world for the individuals around them so yeah it, it's it's yeah. infuriatingly uh it, a, a non-approach to, <laughs> to right. discipline yeah, for me and everything right. else for me yeah for me so from my viewpoint to clarify you know my values consist of wanting to see a system that engenders more rehabilitative and restorative justice. So obviously like I'm as a person pretty clearly against putting kids in jail like adults. That to me yes, doesn't solve Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're not neither one of us is advocating for locking <laughs> right. more people up, but this is like but. the other end of that spectrum. <laughs> this is yeah. like, though, why isn't our goat yoga working? I don't get like, we tried nothing and it's not working. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we, we're on the same page. Right. Totally. And so I just wanted to clarify that that's the thing. That's why I was trying to say. This is how our world out operates now. And that's not good. But this system that they have in this world doesn't operate well either. And it's completely unrealistic. So it's a, it's a hands off <laughs> approach to, well, we can't do we can't do anything because, well, we're spineless goobers. <laughs> like, yes. <okay. laughs> Throw so, your arms in the air, I guess. Yeah. So I had to like I had to talk to my partner about this while we were watching the movie because so. She went to school in New York. She mm -hmm. lived in New York City and she went to an inner city school. So, you know, I'm positing these questions to her. I said, did this sort of scenario ever unfold where you lived, where there was just a roving gang of minors that just ruled a school with an iron fist, just had a school in like its fearful grip? That there was just no way that administrators could do anything about the issue. And she said, no. You know, obviously there's bad kids in all schools. Now, I, for myself, I went to a school in rural suburban Indiana, and I was one of the bad kids. And you know what? I never did anything approaching what these fucking kids did. And I was always on my way almost out the door. If any motherfucker ever came to school with a whiff of drugs, weapons, anything like that, they were gone. You had that circumstance happen all the time where you'd be like, oh, what happened to that dude? Oh, he brought a gun to school. He's gone. So I, I do think I mean? there's a, there, <laughs> there is an element of this movie that is purposely like a hyper sensationalized yeah. uh, version. Of, he's painting a hyper sensationalized picture of kind of where public schools were headed and he's he's yeah. making it. Uh, you know, like we described for exploitation movies, yeah, they kind of pull all of that shit 
to the uh, you know, to the nth degree. It, it, everything gets ramped up. So like, yeah, everyone's coming in with <laughs> yeah. guns and knives and shit. So I think that's purposeful. My thoughts are, um, I'll, I'll save this this little tidbit. But have you seen <laughs> Class of 1999? No, so I haven't seen that. Okay. So Class of 1999 kind of takes conceptually this same idea and then sends it into the fucking stratosphere in terms <laughs> of of how a ridiculous and nutty this idea could become. So um, I actually want to announce that we will be doing Class of 1999 next season because oh, you will be... I think you will love it exponentially more than this one. Um, it's got like Pam Greer in it. It's got Homer from Near Dark is in it. I've never seen him in any other movie ever. Oh, really? He's okay. in it. And it's it's so conceptually nutty that I think that's what the, to bring it back around. That's what this movie needed. It's almost too grounded in reality to where you're asking right. those questions. But if you push yes. it even further and make it more preposterous, yes. then it it lands in a zone where you don't end up asking these questions because you're having fun in the absurdity of it. So yes, yes. that that was my whole point of bringing up the sequel. I think the sequel is more fun right. because it leans hard into absurdism. Yeah. So I'm glad that you made that point because that's what I also wanted to kind of get into with the discussion was if this movie took more from the trauma playbook mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and leaned into that more or the punks in Return of the Living Dead, where it leans into that absurdist kind of aspect, then yes, that's where all of this would have been way more enjoyable and digestible. So, yes, I'm glad it, that you brought it, that we, up and I'm glad cannot... that you say that the sequel does it. Oh, so um, I don't I, I'm speaking of the sequel like it's a longstanding favorite of mine. I watched the sequel for the first time last night after I did a double like a double okay. feature. I watched <laughs> class of 1984 and then I watched class of 1999 and I had to stop it halfway through. Because my boner was raging through my pants so much. I was like, I can't even see the screen anymore. It is unequivocally, you will love it. It is so yeah. absurd. And it's Mark Mark Lester does it as well. Um, yeah. I, I, it is. I, while I was watching it, I was like, we are doing this one next season. Because oh, I feel like great. it'll be our class of 1984 redux where we kind of <laughs> do a more a more fun version of this of this idea. But yeah, fantastic. And this, we cannot state enough. We cannot like drive this into the ground enough. You cannot have I am the future be the opening song for this because I feel like it's it's everything that we're talking about here. It sets the tone for this movie as being almost it, and at points this movie toes the line between like after school special a little bit. Yeah. And when you have I am the future it's touchy feely kind of like, Oh, is somebody like, is the teacher going to try to reach out to some kids and try to shape minds? Like it, it gives off that where you should have just had a banger track. You just do like, just, you don't even have to like buy an expensive song, but if you have like a ripper or a banger of a track, then I know mm -hmm. what I'm getting into. Like, like I'm yeah. thinking I'm getting into, okay, this is going to be nuts or, or, you know, 
absurd on some level. But I am the future fucks this movie. It, it more so than mean. we can than we can describe. Yeah, just really having it having it in the soundtrack period and opening the movie with it really, yeah, just derails the tone. Like so. the 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 opening. Whatever is like the the main song for Return of the Living Dead. Do you know yeah. what the name of that song is? I have no conceptual Party idea. By Party grade, time by forty five grade. It fucking rips. Party time gets me <laughs> in the fucking <laughs> it mood. Does. Yeah. Party time. I'm ready to go. And right. Return of the Living Dead <laughs> understands that party time is going to get some people hyped. Now, I know we're yeah. talking about zombie movies as opposed <laughs> to like more of a real world application here. But put party time in the beginning of of this and I'm ready. Like, I know what I'm getting into. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, yeah. yeah. OK, I don't want to keep shitting on that song, but it, it does keep coming back around as to what ruined the movie. So I'm with you on yeah. that. Yeah. So. What I wanted to say also, because um, this is all in the same thread of talking about the uh, <laughs> the lack of accountability um, for everyone involved, but particularly the administrative and authoritative figures in this. One of the central things that the principal brings up as soon as Norris gets there is he has to bring up their state-of-the-art surveillance system. My question is, <laughs> what's the fucking point in having that surveillance system to survey the students doing awful shit when you say when they do the awful shit, sorry, can't do anything about it. What What do you want me to tell you when you clearly have the evidence on tape as well? Fuck off. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Is that a good point? It, it's it's nuts that they even have that they even have that set up and yeah. you know but they also have like the equivalent of what a 7-eleven has now for like surveillance right. it's like a broom closet with like three monitors so <laughs> but yeah it goes to your point like okay why have this stuff if nothing matters <laughs> it's all it's all smoke and mirrors my friend <laughs> yeah seriously um but i what i want to also say one final thing i think um in terms of the accountability issues when corrigan you know breaches a severe severe um uh, part of his job as teacher and just citizen in general by pointing a gun at his students how is it that he is able to that night then get into a car and then proceed to plow into the same students. Yes. Yeah. I have the exact same question. I put Corrigan wouldn't be directly put into custody and or a mandatory psych hold. Like right. after holding the entire classroom hostage at gunpoint. Yeah. He would have been at, at minimum. He would have been under psychiatric observation. But no. Oh, sorry. Just he had a breakdown. It's a misunderstanding. Carry on, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's nice. Like there's no accountability across the board. Like nobody's being held accountable for any actions in this school. Teacher, janitor, fucking <laughs> student. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. Nobody yeah. has any accountability whatsoever. Even down to like when when uh, 
when Norris goes out to his car and they they spray tainted like shittily like teachers sucks or something like a teacher spelled like T-E-E. And he's like, I thought this yeah. was supposed to be a protected lot. And the security guard like shrugs. He's like, I can't be everywhere at once. It's like, fuck, even that guy's like, no one's being held accountable. This school like kind of rules. Like in terms of getting a job, you got to sure. go there. You can't get fired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't get fired. And as a student, you can just do whatever the fuck you want, man. Like, yes. Like, really, realistically, yes. In terms of probably our preferences, yes. I would love to have went to that school, you know, because, oh, uh, yeah, I could have fucking fucked off and did whatever I want and showed the up phrase, the next day. Gotten away with murder is literal <laughs> here. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and to piggyback off of the Corrigan thing, also Norris was never prosecuted because nobody witnessed anything. So five teenagers <laughs> were found brutally murdered after a room full of people watched Stegman run out of the recital and never return. And then at the end, it's got a hilarious exposition that's like, Norris was never prosecuted because nobody witnessed anything. Like doubling, tripling, mm. quadrupling down on this concept of right. like, Stewiski's like. I don't have any evidence, although I have all the evidence and I'm still going to do nothing. So <laughs> that, that killed me. I literally it's one of the funniest parts of the movie of them saying that because it's so absurd to be like, OK, but realistically, five teenagers were brutally murdered inside of the school and Norris has no alibi to his whereabouts. Yeah, and the fact that while all of this mayhem was happening, no one during the recital had any knowledge whatsoever. No one heard a thing. No one was on staff throughout the entire building to be a witness. Just just a complete vacuum. It's it's they were just cocooned in this area with uh, without unbeknownst Everyone to anything. Everyone is outside. walking around the high school just going la 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 like just hands <laughs> over their ears like just pretending nothing's happening. Yeah. Uh Right. Yeah. Like you said, they just triple down on this whole idea of accountability and and being able to place any sort of blame on any parties whatsoever. It's how they wrapped up the movie. (laughs) (laughs) They think so, like from the filmmaker's perspective, they think like, all right, we'll tie this up in a nice bow and people will be like people will feel gratified to be like, okay, well, Norris got away with the same shit that all of the punk gang got away with. And it'll be very gratifying to see yeah. the leading hero get away with it in the same respect. But no, it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's like hilariously bad to, to do it mm. that way. Uh, Cause it yeah. makes no sense. It, on, if you're going to pull that shit, then you need to have Norris kill all of these individuals in a more sneaky way where he's like, yeah. I want to see Norris in like a fake mohawk and like slam dancing at the club <laughs> and then like like stabbing, uh, what's his name, drugstore or whatever, bar- yeah. or stabbing barnyard in the neck in the pit or whatever. And then like throwing the mohawk in the trash in the back alley and walking back to his car. Like I need more stealth from him. He like yeah, stumble fucked same- his way into killing them. The same way they did in Arthur. That's how they did in Arthur. They just created a melee and then he yes. just got caught in the violence and uses an innocent. Well, he wasn't because they were, you know, you have they to have Norris. Right, right, right. You have to have <laughs> Norris implement the same psyche of of revenge. 
Mm-hmm. Not just have him kill them all and be like, well, Stuiski uh, got a promotion and nothing happened with anybody. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> this enrages me. Um, I did have this thought. I have to dip back into the bad real quick because I mentioned that I was going to say it and I didn't do it. But another one of my bads, because I have to mention this for further purposes in the, in the episode here, uh, any of the lilting... Um, sort of uh quote unquote romantic scenes between between Norris and his wife also don't land for me. <laughs> no, they they do nothing to make me care about the wife, care about that relationship, care about them at all. Yes. It's yeah. it's very fleeting and <laughs> yeah, inconsequential really. Right. So I had to go back to that just to you know, make sure that I had that in in the bag. I agree. Can I run um, through my question? The questions I have left. Do you have any left? Yeah, I have some unless you already cover them. So go ahead and, and run through yours. Um, well, we talked about Norris. Um, not only not only the ending of the movie, but also Norris isn't even suspended, like even pending an investigation into whether or not he beat the shit out of Stegman. Like, yeah. like he got like uh, the... <laughs> The police department treatment like we're not going to suspend you you're, or we will with pay like he didn't even get suspended with pay like they're like we'll we'll let you keep teaching while we investigate this how does that make any sense <laughs> he beat the yeah. shit out of, in he didn't do it but like in the minds of everybody else he beat the yeah. shit out of a student on campus and is being told not only is he going to still be interacting with this individual, but they're going to look into <laughs> it and not do anything in terms of suspending him. So, yeah, that's strange. <laughs> um, Corgan, uh, we did that one. Cor- why? Why wouldn't Corgan um, <laughs> be on a psych hold or in custody? <laughs> yeah. Two more, albeit, albeit tight. Tight as fuck, I should say. Stegman's death, I'm, I'm referring to. It logistically makes no sense. Like, how does the noose get tied around his neck? Like, it's a, like a legit hangman's noose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Seems somehow it, it slips over his body during the fall. And yeah, then... And then gets know, tied into... Accurate, yeah, very accurately snaps on his neck. Yeah. The logistically... <laughs> Not very plausible, but um, my last question is, why didn't Mrs. Norris attend the recital? <laughs> Seems strange that she would stay at home uh, and not go to her husband's big recital that he's been like talking about this whole time and is supposed to be like the crowning achievement of his of his teaching career up to that point. Well, she was going to. She was running late. She was getting ready. Well, shit. I mean, the. How late is she running? Like <laughs> <laughs> she was running really late. Like that she's going to miss it at that point. That is, but that is actually explained in the movie. She's doing she's doing her makeup and getting ready and they catch her before she leaves. God damn. Like you got to go with Peter or I'm sorry. You got to go with with Norris to the recital. Like I don't what yeah, you would think she's you would accompany attending. your husband. Yeah, yeah, she's not attending anything at that point with with whatever she's getting ready for. Um, OK, what uh, anything else to round it out? Yeah. So 
the scene where the kid who's hopped up on coke or whatever oh. and he crawls <laughs> up the flagpole. Um, so obviously they're trying to give a lot of gravitas to that scene and, and you know, it's message about, you know, teenage drug use or whatever. But here's my question. I know that that, for one, there's no fucking way that kid would do that. Two, I understand that that flagpole is pretty high up there, but even if he fell, he wouldn't die. The dude would break his legs. No way. That's a death. If you fall from the the flagpole that high. I don't buy that. I buy that. If you fell off the the top of a flagpole, (laughs) that would be a death. I feel like he would be paralyzed pretty severely, but I don't know if he would die. I, I would like a soup, like a, like a, <laughs> a Mythbusters like a, or something. <laughs> well, I was going to say like, they should have just had like a, like the exposition at the end of the movie. It should have just been like, just to be clear, he didn't die of his wounds from the flagpole. He OD'd on cocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I don't, I've never met anybody of all my friends that do coke. <laughs> like most of them just want to talk within like two inches of my face about the Godfather. <laughs> Like right. nobody's climbing flagpoles or like, you know, blasting my ear with how Abbey Road is like the greatest. Like, I don't know. That, that seems what people on Coke just want to talk to you real closely about real obvious shit. Yeah, it'd be more like and he died from getting the shit beat out of him because he was talking someone's ear off about Abbey Road. Yeah, yeah. he, he was mansplaining more- Abbey Road to, to someone at a party and they, they beat the um, shit out of him. Yeah. Uh, going back to Stegman's uh, death, not so much a question. So I wanted to put this in uh, the goof part of the trivia. There is a goof related to that scene, but not what I saw. I could swear if you look at that scene, when Stegman first falls and he 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 falls to what would be I don't know what the physics terms is, but, you know, he gets to the final point in the trajectory. When you look at that scene, that rope is around his waist. It is not around his neck. Mm. It's around his waist. And then when it cuts to the the close up, then it's around his neck. So it's like a clear mismatch and continuity. I don't know if you noticed that at all. I I actually watched it twice because I was like. I was wondering how the rope got around his neck, but I didn't notice. I didn't notice it being around his waist. I just thought it was absurd that it ever got around his neck to begin with. Yeah. So there's that. Um, one of the things, speaking of Stegman, and I'm surprised we didn't really get to it in, until now. Um, I figured you would make mention of it, but do you at all find Stegman to be a convincing leader of a punk gang? Cause I do not. I do in the respect that like he's in charge and the one who's in charge is like it's kind he kind of has the gravitas of uh, in a martial arts movie like the one guy who doesn't seem like they would fuck anybody up ends up fucking everybody up like the one guy Mm -hmm. in this punk gang who seems the least punk is actually the leader we turned it on its ear like he doesn't dress punk he doesn't doesn't really act like i guess he he acts like a fucking asshole but i i just took it as like he's so punk he doesn't he just hanging out in his mom's condo and wearing like adidas (laughs) jumpsuits and shit like i yeah i don't know (laughs) yeah fair enough but yeah Um, i i i I see what you're saying uh oh 
one last real quick one. Sorry. When Norris sprints off and leaves the orchestra hanging and Janine is left to be the conductor, do you find it plausible that she would just be able to conduct an orchestra, albeit a high school orchestra, just right on the fly like that? If they hadn't planted the seed mm-hmm. earlier about how Janine uh, teaches the class because they don't yeah. have a teacher. That's the sure. only that's the only plausibility to lend to it. Right. OK. Yeah. So that's it. That's what I got. into hyperdrive and um, <laughs> roll through our awards and categories. Starting with quotes, I have one quote that I really <laughs> like. Uh, and of course, it comes from Corrigan. Um, he's talking to uh, Norris in the car and Norris says, I think Stegman is actually a brilliant kid. And, and uh, Corrigan says, so was the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> um, and then uh, Stegman saying life is pain and pain is everything. So there's a lot of like BDSM shit like Marquis de Sade stuff. Uh, Stegman thinking he's like real dark. <laughs> yeah. So as we've discussed in previous episodes, the villains always get the best one liners. And I would say that about this, because if I was going to mention any quotes, uh, it would have been the one that you just mentioned from Stegman, but he does chew up a lot of like the, what are considered the, you know, the, the heavy hitter lines, but he delivers them so ham fistedly that I just can't utter them other than that one, because none of them come off quite the way I think that the director wanted them to. Like you said, he's supposed to be this brooding, he's he's a brooding, you know, actually very highly intelligent individual. You know, it's very deep, and the reason why he's reacting is because, you know, he's actually like this savant sort of nihilist, but it just comes off like real hammy to me. Yeah, it, it doesn't... Yeah, what Stegman's saying like... My bitch mom forgot to buy more milk, so I had nothing to dip my Oreos in. It's like, yeah, I know. Okay, life is pain. <laughs> we get <Yeah>. it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, okay, well, we'll move on from quotes. Uh, best scene, worst scene. I, I think that scene where Corrigan holds the, the class hostage, uh, coupled with then him trying to commit a ve- vehicular manslaughter on all of them. I love that one, two punch. I love it almost more than, or I do love it more than um, even the, the final kind of uh, foray into madness. But I, I, I really yeah. love the, cause I think 
the final stuff is really cool and fun and it's fun watching them all die. But from like a, from like a nuts and bolts acting, directing everything, I think Roddy McDowell carries that, that shit. And I think it's the highlight of the movie for me. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. I actually didn't write that down. I wrote down that, that finale scene. Um, I would say there is a trifecta of great scenes for me. That that one, the Corrigan scene with a gun, the punk show, and that finale. But after like we've discussed it more and I thought about it, I, I will agree with you that I think the, the Corrigan scene, because of Roddy McDowell's performance, is definitely the one that sits head and shoulders above the other ones. I really wish that Stegman uh, just... <laughs> Like when he's asked what an amphibian is and he just like doesn't know. It's like, I just wish Corrigan just blew him away. <laughs> like, you know, the thing. <laughs> yeah. Ahead. Well, I was going to say uh, another thing about that scene, though, that makes it good is when you talk about, you know, Stegman being basically the spoiled brat. I like that scene, too, because it ultimately also shows that all those like kids are just giant pussies. Yeah, because they're know? all like legit scared when the gun is like pointedly in their face yeah so they're like pissing their pants when that happens you know so it's like oh you're not such a tough guy anymore are you fucking brat yeah 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 i like that too what's the worst scene well i already kind of said any of the scenes between stegman and his wife or not stegman sorry norris and his wife trying to be you know tender or whatever but i also I think like that weird and when we get into the trivia, you know, this kind of highlights it even more for me. The the weird couch casting prostitute scene is kind of yucky, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and not convincing. Yeah, it's yucky Where, knowing more <laughs> of it, too. Yeah. Yeah, where it's like, you know, Stegman's trying to portray himself as being kind of almost this like mafia Don sort of. Yeah, you know. man. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. I agree. I, well, I, I said uh, the worst scene was the opening scene because it sets you up for a movie. Yeah. Again, the just I am the future set to anything is hard to stomach. So, <laughs> yeah. Poo poo on a platter there. Yeah, big poo poo. Um, the Dumber I Hardly Know Award for the most killer performance. I I said Roddy McDowell. He's out acting everybody in this fucking thing. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. The Michael Rooker Award, which goes to the e- most evil fucker in the movie. I mean, is it anybody but Stegman? Well, I put the school principal. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. I'll put Stewiski then, because yeah, <laughs> he's perpetuating this violence. <laughs> I right. mean, the obvious choice is Stegman. I like these joke these joke choices, though. Um, yeah, but just like you were saying, well, you know, your your allusion to this being this Nancy Pelosi high of you know just um, <laughs> lack of culpability, lack of bureaucratic culpability on the point part of like, any of the authority figures here, just being just wimp fucking nah, yeah, fuck them but yeah and in a lot of ways the blood is on their hands for being complacent in all of this and just like standing by while it all happens and doing nothing right yeah the recasting couch I have nothing 
absolutely nothing. I don't have fantasy casting other than uh, who was considered for. I don't have any fantasy casting. And then other than who was considered for Corrigan originally before Roddy McDowell took it, I don't have anything. Do you have anything you want to add to it? <laughs> I just put the return of the living dead punks again. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Yeah. Okay. It's like we tried so hard to find. We, we really, we did a back to back. Let's find real punks in cinema. And then we overthought it. And when at the end of the day, it's just the return of the living dead punks. <laughs> I mean, really from this era, I, I think we brought it up when we were talking about Valley girl, Cheryl and I, we brought it up too. When we were talking about this movie, I still feel like from this era, as far as uh, this echelon of punk related movies, Return of the Living Dead um, is definitely like the best campy representation of punks, but the movies that have the most dramatic, best dramatic representation of punks will always be Suburbia and Repo Man. Yes. Yeah. You know, and we met, right. We mentioned both of those last so, time for a good reason. Yeah. So there you go. Um, okay. Well, we'll move on uh, to. The wiki wormhole, uh, the final category of of our episode, starting with the body count. This was set at six. I didn't look it up. I just counted as I went along. So you got the pole jumper. Yeah. Um, and then you've got basically it's pole jumper and all of the punks. Fallon, drugstore, yeah. barnyard, Patsy and Stegman. So that's your six. Yeah. Well short of the 87 set by Dead Alive. Um, uh, do we yeah. want to do we want do we want to uh, also utilize our other species body count? I <laughs> guess rabbits. I don't know how many rabbits <laughs> got it, but yeah, all of Corrigan's rabbits or maybe it, yeah. it seemed like it was more than the just the one. But yeah, R.I.P. Yeah. Corrigan's rabbits. <laughs> OK. Mark Lester said this film was inspired by several true stories of school violence that he had read about in the papers. Ooh, in particular, yeah, sure. uh, <laughs> there was a story <laughs> of a teacher who brought a gun to class to control his students. And, and that, obviously that inspired the Corrigan scene. So that's yeah. fun. Uh, director Mark Lester, who we've mentioned, uh, is out of his goddamn mind, calls this his best film. <laughs> the guy who did Commando. <laughs> calls this his best film. So take that for what it's worth. Take that, Arnie. Um, hey, wait a minute. Mark he's, Lester. He's, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I don't know about you. Nah, I was never a punk rocker. I was a, uh, I was a bricklayer. Worse I came worse. from... <laughs> I was so good the first time, and now it's just... I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I didn't have time to get into character quite as much. Sorry, you came in roaring back. Oh, thank you, Arnie. We'll have you back next week. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> Mark Lester cited a Clockwork Orange as uh, this film's biggest influence. So I could see that, like the chaos that. agent shit. Yeah. Um, Timothy Van Patten 
who plays Stegman actually wrote that concerto that he plays on the piano. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a fun little piece. Uh, that that seems yeah. odd. I know nothing about uh, concertos, but that seemed like a, a like popular piece of of music. So I was actually shocked to find out that he wrote that. That seems crazy. I thought it was like some like Tchaikovsky bullshit. I don't know. Who knows? No, it, well, it was like also one of the rare instances where the the actor is actually playing the music there on screen. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote and obviously performed it. Um, no. So this is the stuff I mentioned earlier, but this is one of the earliest Michael J. Fox roles and he was still being billed as Michael Fox because he was having a registration problem with the Screen Hector's Guild. So he could yeah. uh, he could not go by Michael J. at that point. Um, nearly every shot of Timothy Van Patten, um, who plays Stegman, obviously, is done from a low angle to make him more threatening. You know, that's funny that you mentioned that because I've been reading this book on uh, how to make low-budget horror movies and Mm. i just got done reading you know about certain cinematographers techniques and director of photography techniques i mean i knew about this stuff obviously before the book but it's just another coincidence because i'm currently reading about utilization of different angles and you know standpoints from a photographer's and a videographer standpoint that was one i was reading about yeah yeah, that's a classic technique to to shoot up on someone that you're trying to make more menacing or uh, you know the villain of the of the film. Yeah, they uh, and they talk about uh, a prime example of that is in Psycho in the uh, scene where they're in the living room. Very much so. Utilized a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So let's get into the 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 main minutia. I it, it, most. <laughs> It sounds like all the actors had a real fucking terrible time making this movie and they hated doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but the girl who plays Patsy um, Lang- said... Lang- is it Langua? Langua, Lang- I think. Yeah, it's, we're Lang- either, we either got to go French or we just got to... <laughs> as is. It's either Langua or Langlois. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> yeah. sound right. Neither one sounds good. Yeah. But uh, she said that she was genuinely scared when they they shot the uh, teenage head scene because they got, yeah. quote unquote, actual slam dancers called in for the film. So, like, they called in a bunch of, like, we're filming teenage head uh, show, like, come, come and mosh and stage dive and fucking bounce around into each other. And they they singled out the actors as being like you know, faux punks and routinely fucked with them throughout the entire shooting of, of the teenage head shit. So I love that story. Uh, I don't know if you want to mention it, but you should mention the actual quotes from that actress. Cause she just, she makes herself sound like such a wiener in it. <laughs> I know. I know. I didn't, I didn't want to like drag this part down, but yeah, it is good. Several times I had a punk rocker woman come up to me and say, <laughs> We're going to get you. Mark Mark Lester really wanted reality, but I was terrified. You won't notice in the movie, but whenever there were big scenes like in a club or whatever, you wouldn't see me because I would literally disappear. I was I was afraid. 
when they were slamming people, they were actually doing it. It was real. They were really hitting each other. The punk extras got off on it. It wasn't well thought out for the actors. It wasn't taking care of us. I was afraid because I knew there was no protection on that set. Well, yeah. this is where I drop that, in the baby crying <laughs> soundbite. I don't know if you know this. This is a fun fact, a pat, a pat fact that only my closest friends know. I can mimic a baby crying to like such hyper realization that it freaks people out. Can so, you do it right now? Yes, so I don't have to put in the sound, but yes, do it. Please. Of course I can. <laughs> it's a weird fact of mine. Uh, oh fuck me. <laughs> yeah. Oh dude, I was so I was crying laughing when I read that part. Yeah, man. I don't feel bad for her on any level. I mean, come on now. That's, that's ridiculous. It's just preposterous. Okay. Uh, excellent. <laughs> I'm glad I could bring that. Anytime anyone brings up a baby crying, I'm I say, I got you. Here we go. Um Upset at the violent content after a screening, screenwriter Barry Schneider had his name taken off of the credits. He didn't want to have anything mm-hmm. to do with this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so many tears. Wah! Drop it in. Drop it in. <laughs> um, some theaters showed this film on a double bill with Mad Max 2 Road Warrior. Hello. That fucking rips, dude. That's a fun... <laughs> now that, that's a day... Have yourself a day, King. Like, that's a day at the movies. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's 1981. Boy, howdy. That, that's some yeah, fun. That's that a is. lot of fun. Detective Stu Whiskey's dialogue to Norris was taken word for word from a real life police officer while Mark Lester was researching <laughs> for the film. You can't make this shit up. You can't. Um, this police station was used in Black Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was school. Ten years previous, nineteen seventy four, mm-hmm. not ten years. Um, so we can also get into this the the serious nature uh, that Lisa Lisa Langlos, who played Patsy, uh, concerning um, the woman uh, who played that punk prostitute uh, who is forced to strip naked. Um, she said it's that they Helena pressured her. Something, yeah, yeah uh, Helena Quinton. Yeah. She says, quote, they pressured her into it. She didn't want to take her clothes off. She was shaking. It reminded me of what happened to me in Phobia when she was, I guess she was pressured by producers to film a nude bath scene. You get intimidated yeah. and you don't want to make waves. You're young. You want people to like you. And they make it sound like it's no big deal. That poor girl was literally shaking. I remember it was so sad. My makeup artist was, make, uh, was making her up and I was sitting next to her and she told the girl, don't worry, I'll make you up so that no one will recognize you. And I thought that's not just the issue. It doesn't matter whether someone can see your face. The problem is you're talking, you're taking all your clothes off in front of everyone on set when you don't want to. It's so obviously a very serious issue um, and could have been helped with a closed set because, you know, that's not unheard of for nude scenes where people are uncomfortable to have a closed set where it's like as minimal amount of 
of people on set as possible to make someone feel more comfortable. Yeah, that that is a legit concern that I was like, yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> it really taints this movie. It taints that scene. It bums me out and it's mm. exploitative and gross and shitty. And uh, it, it really bummed me out reading that um, because there's a whole host of individuals who would be more than willing to right. play that role. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, to, to be Linnea <laughs> Quigley, we're back, baby. Yeah, have her do it. She has no issue with it, and in fact, that's how she made her bread and butter. So, like, yeah. find someone that's willing to do it, not pressure someone who who doesn't want to. And to double down on that sadness, this was uh, Helena Quinton's first and only film. She was so upset about being pressured into stripping totally naked in a, uh, in a room full of people for the scene that she quit acting altogether. Yeah. Dear Lord. <laughs> um, and the final tidbit, which I ruined earlier, but I'm going back around. This was spawned by two sci-fi themed sequels that were loosely based off of the original class of 1999, which came out in 1990. And mm-hmm. the direct video follow up class of 1999 to the substitute, <laughs> which came out in 1994. Um, the first of which was directed by Mark Lester. The second uh, had he had nothing to do with. So which question about. Class of 1999-2, okay, why won't, if we're going chronologically into the future, positing the idea that the future just gets more and more depraved, why not a class of 2025? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, you know, I haven't seen the ending. So, I, uh, like I said, I saw the first half of, of 99, and you are just going to love it. I mean... It's it's everything that I know you love. Stacy Keach is in it. Pam Greer, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, Homer from Near Dark, who I've never seen in yeah. anything ever. Um, great cast, absurd, absurd fucking idea. They send these they send these robot teachers into like a demilitarized school zone to try to 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 teach these kids. And like when the kids mouth off, like these robot teachers, these RoboCop teachers, basically are able to like lay down the law in an, in an abs- absurdist way. Um, but yeah, like it sounds that. like maybe they were just, I don't know how that movie ends. So maybe they were just trying to do a follow up for a, based on the ending of class of 99 yeah. instead of like a whole new conceptualized movie. Don't know. I was gonna, I was going to tell you because you, you brought it up a couple times. Uh, the kid who plays Homer, you've seen the movie River's Edge with Crispin Glover, right? No, I have not seen River's oh, Edge. Oh, okay. I was going to say he's in that. But when we talked about Near Dark, that's Jason Miller's son, Jason Miller from Exorcist. When we talked about what? Near Dark. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He's, he's Jason Miller's son and he's the brother to the other dude... Uh, that plays the kid in um, Lost Boys. Hmm. Hmm. I can't remember yeah, that it, d- the actor's name though. We keep calling him Homer just because I. Um, it's something Miller, I think. Um. Joshua John Miller. Yeah. Okay. Well, he hasn't done it. anything for a long time. He dropped out of acting in the '90s, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's Joshua John Miller. Shout out to him. 
for paying for playing a perpetual child in every movie. <laughs> An annoying, <laughs> shitty faced child. <laughs> He's always got like that fucking look on his face where you're just like, you fucking little shit. You little shit. Yes. Yeah. You do want to wring his neck. <laughs> well, let's rate this. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Did you have anything you wanted to add? No, you, you hit all the ones that I, I was going to mention. Okay. So let's rate this. Um, I've changed my rating having talked about this with you. So oh, sometimes yeah. we talk about something and the other person like comes around on to liking it. I've almost talked myself out of liking this as much <laughs> as I did. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because... Um, I definitely downgraded this from my previous expectations, but then I upgraded it in my final assessment because I felt like I was being too harsh given the, uh, the nature okay. of the movie. So what, uh, so what's our iconography here? Hmm. That's a, this is an interesting one. Cause it doesn't have anything necessarily like iconic about it. Um, that I can put my finger on, um, <laughs> Out of five hanging stegmans, sure, hanging stegman. I just like the alliteration of that, hanging stegmans. Um, yeah, I like that too. Out of five hanging stegmans, uh, I originally had put four out of five, but I, I'm going to downgrade this to a uh, a three and a half out of five. I'm not going to do a whole point off, but point uh, half of half a point for the icky uh minutia that i had to research yeah the uh <laughs> the exploitation so i upgraded it i had it at two and then i upgraded it to three so it's three hanging segments for me okay um where on the midnight clock does this land i'd say that like one or two right i agree one for or two the violence and the exploitative nature of it the, boob- the boobery the boobery yes um let's see okay so what's on the next episode for us then oh woot woot my juggalos oh boy this is one Where's this going so i think i mentioned this last time but this is my final movie for the season yeah this we each have finale. one left you have you go and then i and then i pick the finale so yes yeah. so i felt like because you know this has been a a bumpy season for us you know but i had a surefire hit in the chamber from the jump and i just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and I felt like this is the way we got to go out on my end. This is the way that we reconcile any of our differences, Pat. We smooth over any of the disappointments that we've had, like tonight's movie that we talked about, maybe. And we just have a, a real nanny. Hmm. So the movie that we're going to talk about next week is Night of the Creeps. Oh, boy. One of my favorites. <laughs> Of all time. And Mine the, too. the triumphant return of Tom Atkins to this podcast. Absolutely. Mm. So get ready for a real romp. They, they talk uh, about just fun from top to bottom, left and right, up and down your mama. It is one of the most fun horror movies of the 80s. I absolutely fucking love it. 
great. I, I mean, love, I look forward to it. You talk about 45 grade party time. This is party time, my friend. Yeah, if this party is a party time, time motherfucker. Well, I was going to say if party time was a movie, but I guess I suppose if party time was a movie, it would just be Return of the Living <laughs> Dead. But, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, this is it's party time, bitch. Like, yeah, uh, that's that's great. It's going to be us just jerking each other off, though. For Absolutely. But that's OK. Why not? It's going to be hot and it's going to heat up even more. I love it. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music, appropriately enough, is brought to you by Teenage Head. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod, F-L-I-X. For Adam Walker, I'm Pat Mitchell. See you next week, creeps. Life is pain. Pain is life. Mom, you got 2% again. 